Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have David Brandenberger on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Propaganda State in Crisis, Soviet Ideology, Indoctrination, and Terror Under Stalin. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. Today we're talking with David Brandenberger about his new book, Propaganda State in Crisis, Soviet Ideology, Indoctrination, and Terror under Stalin, 1927 to 1941. As I was telling David in the pre-interview, I really enjoyed this book for many reasons, but one of the reasons was that it has a thesis, and I think that good history books often have theses, at least I... um, That would just be my own personal opinion about that. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this one has a strong thesis, and uh, it will be controversial to some, I think. It is revisionist in the best sense. That is, it brings to light something that we did not know, that also being a cardinal attribute of a good history book. So I I congratulate David on writing the book, and uh, David, can I ask you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I guess I'd have to admit that the thing that brought me to the field is probably a little bit less romantic than some of my friends can claim. Some of my friends will say that uh, it was the, their interest in reading Dostoevsky or Tolstoy in the original, which led them to study of Russia and Russian. Uh, in my case, I'd have to cop to the fact that it was probably Ian Fleming, and then, which is already embarrassing enough, and then probably Reagan's 1983 Evil Empire speech, uh-huh. uh, which really inspired a sort of sense of teenage rebellion and skepticism. Um, and so I began reading quite a bit about Russian history in junior high and high school, and I come from an academic family, so I was encouraged already in high school to begin teach- taking Russian, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> um, I continued this course of study in college at McAllister, close to your Grinnell, oh, yeah. uh, under Jim von Geldern and Peter Weisensel. Then I was in Russia in the early 1990s for quite a while, and then uh, went on to Harvard, where I worked under Terry Martin, mm-hmm. Lauren Graham, Roman Schvorlok, and Richard Pipes. Um, for the past eight years, I've taught at the University of Richmond. That's like a dream team at Harvard right there. Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah. yeah there's a pretty, some pretty good people there, yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you have published to date? Because you have a very considerable publication record and how that relates to a propaganda state in crisis, if you'd be willing to do that. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. But. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> I think uh, – Propaganda State and Crisis probably can be traced back to my first book. I have other publications, obviously, but but I think the intellectual origins of this project really go back to the first major book, which is uh, called National Bolshevism. That book focused on the formation and rise of modern Russian national identity. and It was something that I dated in that book to the Stalin period, 20th century, 
uh, specifically to Soviet investments in mobilizational propaganda and mass education. And I argued in that book uh, that it was official Soviet Russocentrism that sparked the formation of a coherent mass sense of Russian national identity on, in society after 1937. Once I finished that book, uh, I was casting about for new ideas, and re really pretty quickly I decided that what I wanted to do and write another book about was a related question, uh, investigating not the rise of Russian national identity, but instead the decline and ossification of a revolutionary socialist identity. I guess the, you could say the decline of, of communist idealism during the same period. So I, I kept, I maintained a strong interest here in official identity projects in the USSR, but switched from the uh, Russocentric uh, Russo Russian national identity issue uh, to maybe a story of decline and, and failure with the project revolving around communist idealism. So I guess in a sense you could say that this new book is a prequel uh, to the other one, uh, though it's probably better to say it really complements the first book with a completely independent freestanding thesis. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's actually get into the material itself, which is, which is fascinating. Uh, let me try to put it in lay terms or set the scene a little bit. When the Bolsheviks took power in 1917, uh, they had a kind of a PR problem their message appealed to a small minority, I think I could say with some confidence, of, of people in the, 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 the reconstructed Russian Empire or Soviet Empire, as you might call it. But there were a lot of other people that needed to be convinced that uh, the project was something they might want to get on board with. And your, your book talks about how they tried to do this. Um, can you talk about sort of the first stage of that, how they, how they created a mechanism to kind of get the word out about what they were doing and convince people to join? Yeah, this is so you say it really well. There are probably three phases of, of mobilizational propaganda during the interwar years in the 20s and 30s, and you're, you're talking about the first phase. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, the Bolsheviks had a very specific message which, which appealed to a narrow constituency, but as they try and expand and rally this society with mobilizational propaganda into the 1920s, uh, what they end up investing in is, is what we would today call a really materialist style of propaganda. This was propaganda and imagery which stressed class conflict, anonymous social forces, other sort of structuralist concepts that were taken out of Marx and, and related intellectual thought. Uh, so the propaganda itself was predictably rather schematic and focused on idealized but rather generic representations of class and social forces. Attention was cast on groups of protagonists rather than individual heroes, internationalism, uh, superseded nationalism and patriotism and so on. Um, so I followed this, uh, the evolution of this early first phase of, of Soviet mobilization and propaganda over the course of the 1920s. I also refer to uh, people in the past who've looked at this, like Victoria Bonnell and, and uh, Peter Kenes in particular. But I think that the real test of this early propaganda line occurs in 1927 during the so-called war scare with Great Britain. And I argue that during this diplomatic rupture, uh, the Soviet leadership bid to expand its, the mobilizational impact of its line with new talk of both industrialization and war and defense of the USSR. And then I shift a little bit and note that in the 1990s, a number of uh, secret police reports and public opinion were released uh, in, in, in the former USSR and Russia which gave us huge amounts of new data on how people responded to this uh, the functionality of this mobilization propaganda during the war scare. And this was terribly interesting to look at because it turns out that instead of stimulating a surge of popular support for the regime, 
the war scare instead inspired panic and hoarding and defeatist rumors that swept straight across the USSR. Mm. Some of my favorite reports detail peasants who were reported as, as looking forward to the British invasion because it would simply <laughs> no. topple the Bolsheviks and restore mm -hmm. the monarchy. But so I argue that this is really pretty significant, this debacle. Uh, it occurs in 1927, uh, just a couple of months before the 10th anniversary of 1917, and it forces Bolshevik ideologists and propagandists to really think hard about the, the past 10 years of propaganda and, and agitation and why hasn't it worked. Uh, and they begin to try slowly to think about ways of increasing the accessibility of what was really a sort of arcane, schematic, bloodless, class-based sort of propaganda. Um, but one thing that I guess I stress as we move in this transition from the first phase to the second phase of my periodization here is the slow transition, that there was no moment of epiphany here and that the uh, professional ideologists and propagandists within the Soviet propaganda apparatus really struggled for three, four years to try and sort through their confusion and identify what be, might be a more effective approach to mobilization and propaganda without surrendering any of their orthodox adherence to Marxist materialism. So they cast about quite a bit during those years and I think that that confusion is interesting. It really, mm -hmm. it really shows the um, anguish and difficulty with which the Bolsheviks were retooling. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I argue then in the second phase, the second part of the book, is that the answer to this dilemma, the solution to the debacle of 1927, doesn't actually come from the ideologists or propagandists at all. Uh, what I found was really interesting was that uh, the solution to this crisis probably comes to the ranks of professional journalism, specifically journalists working in youth-oriented newspapers and in the central press. Uh, and their answer is to augment and in part and, and, and uh, maybe, maybe replace to a certain extent the previous decade's emphasis on anonymous social forces and class with a new focus on heroism, specifically individual-based heroism, uh, talking about concrete individuals and their contributions either to the revolution, the civil war, or, or socialist construction. So a big shift from groups and class to heroic role models. And my analysis here, I guess I really should say, runs parallel to an argument that's been advanced by Matt Leneau in his study mm -hmm. of Soviet journalism at the same time. And I, I, I take his argument really seriously. Uh, I think he's right that this idea doesn't come from the people you'd expect it to come from, the ideologists, the propagandists, the Politburo. Instead, it really comes from uh, journalists and, and essayists and people like that who are really engaged in this reach out to the population. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Why, why, why was it the case that party ideologists, of whom there were uh, many, uh, couldn't come up with what we need is some heroes? Because it, it, I think, I don't really have a smoking gun on this, and I looked for a while. I saw an awful lot of rather panicky memos from on high down to the ideological establishment asking for revisions, continuously rejecting attempts to broaden the scope and, and accessibility of the, the mobilizational uh, propaganda. But what I think probably the core problem was, uh, was maybe a set of ideological blinders that many of these ideologists had 
invested, they'd invested very heavily in anonymous social forces and materialism. They really believed what they were talking about. These are true believers after all. And so they simply couldn't understand why people just didn't get it uh, and, and sympathize with the approach they take. So they remix it a variety of different ways. But then I think that they noticed that in the youth newspaper, in Komsomolskaya Pravda, and then ultimately in Pravda and Izvestia, the uh, new dedication of column inches in those papers to discussions of, of specific heroes of production or specific Civil War heroes, the new focus on photographs rather than on line drawings of generic workers. All of this seems to really uh, uh, catalyze opinion uh, or at least prove to be greater uh, to, to have a greater social response on the, on the, on the mass level. Mm-hmm. So it takes a number of years for this realization to dawn upon the, the leaders of the ideological establishment. But what I argue is that you can begin to see the movement in the focus from heroes, from the press into broader mass culture already in the early 1930s. And this transit is more or less established and official by 1934. So it's a long process. But you see this shift from uh, focus on heroes exclusively in the newspapers to uh, film, to novels, uh, to party textbooks, and so on and so forth, culminating, I guess, or, or becoming fully uh, mature in 1934, and this, I guess, is where I would term the the center point of of this new phase, second phase in Soviet mobilization propaganda. The other thing that is added to the mix at this point, or is being added to the mix at the, during this transition time, is a uh, new discussion of the concept of patriotism. Uh, patriotism in the 1920s had been dismissed by the Bolshevik hierarchy as a bourgeois crutch. It was something that the bourgeoisie did in other foreign countries and, and used as a masking ideology in order to distract workers from their proper class interests. So patriotism had been a source of considerable disdain uh, in the USSR during the 1920s. But during the early 1930s, at the same time that the hero, individual heroism is coming online, you see a hesitant rehabilitation of patriotism as well. Stalin probably leads this. Stalin didn't lead the renovation of the heroes and individual heroism, but he does lead the renovation of the idea of patriotism, which he now calls Soviet patriotism, Mm -hmm. to distinguish it from bourgeois patriotism. And so Stalin, this is a critical moment in 1931 when Stalin gives a major speech in which he announces that Marx, of course, was right in 1848 to say that the workers had no fatherland. But since 1917, the situation in the USSR was quite different. Now, there was a workers' fatherland. Mm -hmm. And so patriotism, Stalin says, is a legitimate emotion that the proletariat ought to experience and feel in in relation to the USSR. And so, therefore, he sort of opens, he he reverses uh, the longstanding Soviet avoidance of the concept of patriotism and and, uh, essentially gives it permission to uh, operate as an independent variable in, in, in mobilization propaganda. This, too, of course, takes some time. There's almost an allergic reaction, I think, on the part of uh, party ideologists and propagandists to the concept of patriotism. So that, too, sort of goes through a series of cycles between 1931 and 34. but at about the same time that the focus on heroism is being officially recognized uh, in Soviet mass culture and at Soviet Writers' Conference, in 1934, you also see patriotism manifest in the paper and in mass culture. And this all leads us, I guess, to um, midpoint in the 1930s, 
where I would argue, I guess, that um, the second the second phase of Soviet mobilization and propaganda really delivers a more effective and more accessible uh, propaganda line than had been experienced previously, especially in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. This new material was concrete. Uh, it was accessible. It focused on heroism and patriotism, specifically in regard to the narrative of the revolution, the civil war, uh, socialist construction. Uh, it provided role models for admiration and emulation who uh, marginally literate people could actually process and relate mm-hmm. to. Uh, and so I ultimately argue here that, that and, and I try and demonstrate in the, in the book, that you can actually see the resonance, you can identify the resonance in society that this new propaganda line creates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the resonance is, is considerably more favorable than the experiments in the 1920s. Is, is this based on survey data? Is there, are they still conducting <laughs> surveys? It, 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 indeed, this is a, the issue of popular reception is a very difficult one yeah. to track. Um, we can talk about that later if you're if you're interested in focusing on that. I, I use a variety of different sources, uh, letters, diaries, memoirs, uh, secret police reports. Uh, I also use other sorts of material uh, like uh, cinema ticket sales, uh, the circulation of new m- novels and print runs. Mm-hmm theater productions, and I triangulate that all together to try and make sure that the shortcomings of any of those individual sources are, are uh, bolstered or, or um, uh, strengthened by the advantages of other sources. So I try not to use just mm-hmm. a single genre of source, but to rather use them together in triangulation to, mm-hmm. to talk about the, uh, the increased successful receptivity uh, of the uh, propaganda line on the mass level. Mm-hmm. Let me ask another question related to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this relates to how the, the Soviet system worked. Um, was this a case in which signals were being sent from the top and center down, sort of uh, in order to be picked up, or were there orders? They were like, okay, now we're starting the Heroes campaign. <laughs> Indeed, during the the uh, in this confusing stage between or confusing phase between 1927 and 1934, there probably aren't clear sig- there is not clear signaling. Stalin, in fact, gets up and renovates that concept of patriotism in 1931. Perhaps he thought he was giving a signal, but you don't see a lot of movement in terms of mass culture uh, picking up on this new concept of patriot, Soviet patriotism and, and elaborating upon it and extending it, you don't see that immediately. You see it slowly within the top-down military in 1933, uh, and then you see it finally after another big nudge by Stalin on the eve of May Day 1934 in order to get it into the public sphere. So the, it's a, it's a, you, you certainly are touching on a traditional paradigm of Soviet history where we usually assume that it's a highly top-down system and that most of the initiative and agency is coming from above. But one of the things that I think is interesting about at least the mid part of this argument that I'm creating is that there's a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Everything is really contingent. Uh, even the leadership doesn't know particularly what it, it wants, and if it knows what it wants, it doesn't exactly know how to get there. And so there's a lot of trial and error, and it ends up being, I guess, the journalists and Maxim Gorky who are probably probably deserve the credit for making the breakthrough 
into a more accessible mass mm -hmm. uh, uh, style of mobilizational propaganda. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the reason I asked the question actually is because of some not so very recent reading I've done in German historiography, particularly about the way the Nazi state worked. And, you know, Ian Kershaw has this notion of mm -hmm. working toward the Fuhrer. And that is to say, you know, we have this absence, there's no Fuhrer befell for lots of things, you know, that, that mm -hmm. happened, big initiatives. That we can't find any document or piece of paper that says, you know, Hitler says, okay, do this now. I mean, let alone, you know, kill all the Jews. And mm -hmm. Kershaw explains this by saying, well, he was sending signals, the signals were received, and then people, having picked up the signals, did what he wanted. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think Kershaw is quite persuasive there in the Nazi case. In the Soviet case, at least through this difficult period between the war scare of 27 and and 1934, I think that there's a lot of fumbling around in the dark. Certainly, there are a number of prominent ideologists and party historians who are trying to offer Stalin ways out <laughs> of this crisis. Yeah. And they there are no end of documents in Stalin's personal archive in Moscow. Uh, which are which literally consist of book manuscripts that have been yeah. sent to him, or the revisions to a book that's been judged to be no longer uh, successful uh, for a second edition or a third edition. The prominent historians like uh, uh, Knorin and Yaroslavsky, especially Yaroslavsky, just send uh, manuscript after manuscript to him. Stalin sort of sits in judgment rather than sending signals, because I think Stalin himself doesn't know what he's right. looking for. Right. He does, though, appear extremely congratulatory in 1934 and 1935 when there are a series of breakthroughs. First of all, in more mass culture, he's enamored with the film Chapaya, for instance, and mm -hmm. just thinks this is the best, and he tells other leading uh, um, film directors like Davjenko that what they really need to do is shoot another Chapayev, shoot another Chapayev. This is, this is the best thing that we've got. And then when, when the historians finally get their acts together and write an interesting book about the Civil War, he tells them, you know, this is wonderful. This reads like a novel. This is what we need. Yeah. And so that's, I guess, the closest that I've been able to get at as far as yeah. direct signaling, because I literally don't think that, that he is showing the initiative here. He doesn't have yeah. the agency. He's uh, more or less staying in the background looking for something. He vetoes a lot of approaches. He expresses uh, concern and, and criticism over others. But finally, when he sees it, and the fact that it comes from Maxim Gorky, he's excited and signs on to the idea, I think, more than, than uh, being the initiator. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about who some of these Soviet heroes were? Um, is this the area in which we find the Order of Lenin and, uh, I don't know, Heroes of the Soviet Union and that sort of stuff? Is that all invented? In well, this, this, is, this is indeed that emergence of the heroes uh, cult, and, and uh, uh, a number of these awards are, are, are um, launched or, or I guess, uh, institutionalized during mm -hmm. this time period. Um, so in terms of the heroes of the revolution, you have a real systemization of the pantheon of, of uh, Lenin's comrades in arms. Uh, some of them who are readily rememberable today, Kirov, Derzhinsky, others who, uh, for reasons that we can talk about in a little while, have, have been less prominent in party history since. So there's still talk at this time of Bukharin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Prebrzhensky, uh, you also talk, there's also a lot of talk about prominent Red Army commanders, Blucher, Tugachevsky, um, and, and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. who are really not only heroes, but you almost see their pictures 
daily in the newspaper, especially the military heroes towards the middle of the 1930s, after the tension with Poland and after Hitler's rise to power, there's an awful lot of discussion about Red Army military prowess, and a lot of this is going to be expressed through the um, person, personified, I guess is a better word, uh, by the names uh, names like Blucher, Tugachevsky, Gmarnik, mm-hmm. um, Yakir, and so on and so forth. So there's the Soviet propaganda shifts from a uh, generic um, focus on anonymous social forces and, and institutional structures in the 20s to a much more uh, individual-focused style of propaganda in the 30s. And, and, and people remember in their, in their memoirs just being enamored with, with Tukhachevsky or with Blucher or with Gamarnik or with Yakir and following their every move and having their pictures tacked up on, on, on the bookcase at home. Uh, and uh, it apparently was really quite successful. This is this was, I guess, one of the beginnings for for how I attempted to demonstrate the receptivity of this new line. Just the, the, the memoiristic recollections of how important this was to a whole array of Soviets of mm-hmm. different social origins and class. Um, that apparently this really does hit a hit a hit a chord within the population. Um, it it to uh, um, draw if that's what one does with an analogy, to draw an analogy, a horrible analogy that might be useful to the listeners, uh, I guess Soviet propaganda went from the 1920s in which it was The Economist to the 1930s in which it was People magazine. Is that bad enough? <laughs> I mean, there certainly is a, there is certainly a populist element to it. I think that there's, there's no denying that. It, is never, it still focuses on a Soviet socialist identity project, but I think you're absolutely right that it's retailored for a much more mass audience. It clearly has populist elements to it. It is more or less consistent with an overall Marxist-Leninist framework, but it's a profound rethinking mm-hmm. of the overall propaganda line. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, and I can only imagine that uh, behind closed doors, or I don't know, maybe in the party press in the late 20s, that people objected to it because it is so obviously contrary to the collectivist principles of Marxism-Leninism, for example, the notion that, as you say, it's actually classes that do things, not people, um, that there are these sort of, uh, you know, as you say, anonymous social forces that are out there doing stuff, and it's not individuals yes, doing that, things. You're, you're, and, you're absolutely right, especially during the Cultural Revolution of the of 28 through 31. There's a huge amount of discussion in mass culture, and especially among um, writers and, and uh, artists in the society about is it possible to depa- depart from the collectivism of the, of the previous decade to something more individualistic. And this is more or less uh, uh, officially sanctioned uh, in 1932 and then in 1934 with the advent of socialist realism, which mm-hmm. is the, the new mode of socialist expression which explicitly calls for uh, the celebration of ordinary individuals who are capable of triumphant feats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're absolutely right to to uh, assume that there were major dis- disputes and discussions during this time period between the adherents of the previous really materialist approach to artistic expression and the new wave of people following Maxim Gorky who said that this just had to be rethought in order to make it more accessible to the mass level. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people remembered what, uh, not so much what Lenin had said about the issue, but the way that he acted. And, you know, he was not really in favor of making him 
uh, synonymous with the party. He thought that, you know, that there should be this sort of collectivist idea of rule. There should be the party. Mm-hmm. And, and he lived his life that way. I mean, he never thought – I mean, obviously, it's hard to say that he was uh, um, humble. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, he, he, in terms of his personal presentation, he was not in favor of any cults of personality. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. That's certainly fair to say. A lot of that was done after his death. Yeah. He, when Gorky attempts to to move the uh, Soviet arts and letters and therefore propaganda in the direction of a more individual focus, uh, he is able to cite some of Lenin in the process. Lenin mm-hmm. was a great fan of 19th century literature. And so Gorky creates this argument, which is then really elaborated in, in socialist realism, which suggests that one has to learn from the classics, that, mm-hmm. they, that the old forms of expression are useful to understand how much more superior socialist forms of expression are. We uh, did not, 1917 shouldn't be a complete break from the past, but it should be the next in a series of evolutionary steps. And so therefore... Uh, the complete and utter reinvention of the arts and letters, which is proposed in cult circles in the 1920s, isn't necessary. Instead, a harmonization of new socialist values and priorities yeah. well, and triumphalism is necessary to do on the top of the uh, artistic legacy of, of, of the previous regime. So it's, a, it's, it's interesting that, that Gorky is able to use Lenin in that shift uh, but I think you're probably right that some of it is somewhat tenuous. I mean, Lenin never appeared in any uniform. I mean, ever. Uh, and, and he wouldn't have. At least, I, well, I don't know if he would have. Who knows what he would have done. Um, so is this the period at which we get uh, the sort of craze for um, Arctic exploration and flyers and things like this? Or is that Absolutely. Really, yeah, okay. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? This, is, very this is all 1934. Yeah. Uh, so the the focus, part of the, the uh, official... I guess, um, legitimization of these two new focuses on heroism and patriotism is 1934. 1934 begins with the rescue of an, a stranded Arctic research mission aboard the ship, the Chelyuskin. Uh, the, this ship is located, and then its, its uh, uh, crew and, and researchers are rescued by Soviet flyers, uh, between January and, and uh, spring of 1934, there's ceaseless coverage in Pravda about this heroism, which begins with, with concern over the crew and researchers on the vessel, but then really turns to focus on the dy- dynamism of the flyers and the bravery and the selflessness with which they are taking these, these risky missions above the Arctic Circle to try and find this ship. Uh, the return of the researchers and and officers from the ship plus the aviators is a tremendous uh, media experience in in the spring of 1934. It happens just on the eve of May Day. And so this is the moment in time when the the newspapers just focus uh, almost to to the exclusion of other (laughs) important propaganda lines on the individual experience, how it was the Soviet society that is looking up to these people and and providing moral uh, support. Uh, This is when, as you mentioned earlier, we get the uh, award of the Hero of the Soviet Union is announced and cast and awarded Mm -hmm. to these people just after May Day in 1934. Uh, You also see at this time explosion of patriotic rhetoric. Stalin rewrites the slogans from May Day 1934 in order to emphasize the, the, 
the defense of the fatherland, and aviators are asked to write into Pravda and vow allegiance to the defense of the USSR and, and everlasting patriotism. So, so you're you're right to say that uh, this is this uh, series of media events really helps uh, make official this new sense of of, a, of attention to individuals, heroes, and patriots. And uh, you can really see the reflection of this wave of media attention uh, in letters and in diaries and in memoirs from the time period. People remember Gromov, they remember uh, Schmidt, they remember Schmidt, some of the, yeah. the, the prominent people who were involved either in Arctic exploration or the risky airplane flights and, and attempts at record setting during the 1930s. They get lots of attention and they're, the way that they're described in the press is not necessarily so much on a personal level as being exemplars of Soviet experience and Soviet accomplishment, clearly as role models for emulation and admiration. People remembered the Flyers in the 1980s when I first went to the Soviet Union. I mean, Schmidt, Absolutely. everybody knew who Schmidt was. I mean, that was mm-hmm. She was Schmidt, you know. Uh, so it worked. Um, right, it, it's Lindbergh without the it, subsequent it, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it is Lindbergh. Um, so uh, it works very well. You create this pantheon of heroes, and this gains a certain amount of attraction among the populace, and um, I suppose that people on high thought things were going a little bit better, that the whole project was gaining legitimacy. Um, And then, as you say in the book, uh, another force sort of undermines this. They start to kill their heroes. Disaster strikes. Yes, disaster strikes, yeah. So, yeah, we have a – the things are – as far as I can tell, uh, going well, increasingly successful after 1934 in cinema, in, in literature, in, in mass culture, and propaganda. And then uh, I, I marked the outset of the third phase rather suddenly in the second half of 1936 with the advent of the Great Terror. As you, as you said, they, they begin killing their heroes. The, the terror, of, as we've long known, has a devastating effect on the party, the military, the intelligentsia. And what I argue here is that as those ranks are being uh, consumed by the terror, of course you have an awful lot of collateral damage within the within this field of mass culture. Um, the purge, the wave after wave of purges between 36 and 38 undermines this new mobilizational propaganda literally because it is um, uh, uh, converting the heroes of yesterday into the enemies of the people of today. The exposure of people like Blucher the exposure of, of uh, Bukhar and uh, the exposure of Gamarnik and Yakir and the Red Army is devastating to this propaganda line because uh, it, these people move from one day to the next from being role models to uh, taboo. You can't even mention their names in, the, mm-hmm. in public because of their status as enemies of the people. What's interesting to think about, I guess, is that and I spend quite a bit of time uh, discussing this in the book, that as the terror begins to consume the heroes and patriots, the ideological establishment is, is thrown into a state of, of anguish and chaos. Propagandists attempt, of course, to recall some of the films and close theatrical productions and remount them, uh, reprint books, uh, because these things are key to the new propaganda line. You can't pull some of these feature films and continue to uh, enjoy a mobilizational effect. Uh, you, it becomes very, very difficult to release new books on the revolution, civil war, socialist construction, because it's hard to populate them with protagonists. And uh, 
even the the existing centerpieces of this propaganda campaign need to be pulled. There have been other people who have spent quite a bit of time <clears throat> focusing on this. There, David King in London, for instance, has some great uh, publications about the airbrushing of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but films are recut, pictures are airbrushed, uh, books are rewritten. Some books go through multiple editions, second, third, fourth editions during these two years. What's important to note is that the terror doesn't just happen all at once. It goes in waves. And so that means that uh, what, when one rewrites a book in 1937, it might not stay on the shelves very long if more protagonists are revealed to be, more heroes are revealed to be enemies of the people. So if a book or film rework today might have to be recalled tomorrow. And I think that this sense of ideological instability, uh, instability in the, in the propaganda in which, which the regime was regarding as its cornerstone, forces uh, propagandists, and now Stalin, uh, to really rethink things again. Um, because it just becomes very, it becomes very difficult to keep up with the changes in uh, the, the, the purges force on mass mm-hmm. culture. A lot of the really important material just becomes impossible to use or impossible to rely on with any sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the beginning of the third phase of, of uh, mobilizational propaganda during this period then I would locate between 1936 and 1938, again, a period of contingent chaos when people are scrambling and trying to figure out what mm-hmm. to do. You see an individual process, first of all, in which party historians and propagandists begin to remove people one by one from crowd scenes and films mm-hmm. or, or, or books. But what I see in 1938 is that Stalin really changes the, the, the axis upon which this whole propaganda apparatus is pivoting. A major party history textbook is coming into production in 1938, the short course, mm-hmm. which is probably the seminal text of the Stalin period. Mm-hmm. It, goes in, it stays in print until 53, 40-odd million copies are published, everyone has to read it. So Stalin gets the manuscript of this text on his desk in May of 1938, and he obviously is frustrated by the way that the, that the uh, previous um, mobilization propaganda line is not uh, is failing to serve state and party projects. So he looks at this text and edits it very heavily. And what I what I noticed when I was doing research for the book in Moscow was that he literally strips this text of its focus on individual heroes and, assign, and instead reassigns historical agency to institutions like the party, the party leadership, and to more anonymous social forces. So this, I argue, marks a distinct third phase in the sense that we see the ossification of the previous accessible popular propaganda line, and in a sense a return uh, a modified return, albeit, but a return to the uh, propaganda devices in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. We see the resurrection of the schematicism, mm-hmm. the return to anonymous social forces, the focus on anonymous institutions like the party or the party leadership, and a real distancing from uh, this previously quite successful mass appeal focus on individuals and heroism. The ramifications, I think, of this are extraordinarily important for the period because this line is predictably less appealing, and I think it's possible to document that the, the films released after 1938, the novels, the uh, textbooks are less effective. Uh, and more than that, I think that the regime realizes that this is not 
going to work. It's, uh, there's a big forum that Stalin participates in in October of 1938 in which his propagandists tell him that they're struggling to sell the short course to society. And so I, I think that this explains a number of the other mobilizational exigencies that the late 1930s are famous for. We've got more and more emphasis placed on variable wage scales, gender equality, the personality cult surrounding Stalin and Lenin is amped up considerably during this period of time. You've got a selective return to traditional social practices. And I guess most in, in, interesting for me, uh, this new stress on Russocentrism mm -hmm. uh, comes online, which replaces previous uh, interest in internationalism and, and mm -hmm. uh, purely socialist values. So I see these uh, attempts to augment the weakened central line as being exigencies, probably pretty contingent, and uh, probably surrogates that, that sort of stand in for a more coherent approach to party propaganda. This, uh, I guess, if you really want to tie this off, my argument would be that uh, this marks the end of the third phase, or maybe the third phase of propaganda continues in more, more, more or less of an ossified state, but this marks an end to Soviet attempts to instill a genuinely popular sense of revolutionary socialist identity on the ground, um, at least during the interwar years, and I would probably argue until the Khrushchev period when there's an attempt to return to communist idealism. But for the, for the meantime, because of this brutal failure of the line due to the purges, uh, heroes are abandoned until World War II, and uh, heroism and uh, patriotism uh, also sort of takes a second, uh, a second position in, in mobilizational propaganda mm -hmm. until probably mid-war. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, can I ask a couple of questions? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. One, um, I think will be of absolutely no interest to the listeners, but it's of great interest to me. Did you actually get to look at, the, uh, at, at Stalin's redacted c copy of the manuscript of the Kraki course? Yes. That's, oh. my next, that's my next project. Jesus. So, so, yeah, so this is the holy grail, I guess, in a sense. Um, and it, I, 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 won't, I won't claim absolute credit for it. I'm working on, on this new project on the short course in conjunction with Mikhail Zolnov, a, a, a prominent Russian specialist on the subject. But together, he and I found the, found the holy grail. So you, like, had so the I, thing. You, had, you actually had it there, and you, like, looked through it with his own little, you know, markings and redactions and stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. too cool. Boy, that is just so... The listeners are going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> um, but believe me, that would be a very uh, – that, that really would be a, a good thing to – I would like to look at that. Let me just yeah. put it that way. I would like to look at that. And then the second thing is, is that – you know, and this is sort of my own uh, sort of uh, comment – is that, that this, um, this sort of transition between the second and the third or the third moment um, that is uh, after the purges begin and they begin to remove heroes, it, it has a – really tremendous effect on the way in which people outside the Soviet Union start to think about the Soviet Union because it gets into, for example, Orwell. Because remember, Winston Smith's job is precisely this, to take people out of the historical record. And it becomes this kind of trope that communists, that all communists are liars in this way. Mm -hmm. and that, yeah, and, the, memory, and, the memory hole. Yeah, right, the memory hole. Like, and this comes to stand for the entire thing, even though it's really sort of just one moment. Yeah, I, mean, I just find that I, very interesting. I think that's. I think you're right, and I think maybe the impressions of that are stronger. At least during the Cold War, impressions of that were probably stronger abroad than they were at home. Literally, because it becomes impossible to mention these people. Yeah. Uh -huh. The uh, textbooks that described Tukhachevsky before his arrest 
in uh, in execution in in uh, uh, 37 become impossible to obtain. They go into the they're either pulped or they're held behind yeah. seven seals uh, in in special party libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, the images are pulled from society, from circulation in newspapers and and in in uh, um, on the silver screen. And so it really becomes hard to talk about these people. Some of them are cautiously rehabilitated in the 1950s. Uh, there's a more energetic effort to restore their names to the historical narrative under Gorbachev in the 1980s. But that phenomena that you're talking about via Orwell uh, is something that's just impossible to talk about for at least mm-hmm. the Stalin period. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it turns out that you served under Blucher, uh, during the Polish campaign or something like that, you can't talk about it mm-hmm. subsequently. You can talk about the, the division you served in, but you can't talk about who your commanding officer was because you can't mention that name in print mm-hmm. uh, unless it's couched in discussions of enemies of the people. Uh, so it really has a profound effect on the describability of the Soviet past during the Stalin period, um, so dramatic that it probably even um, hamstrings what you're talking about. This is... Uh, connection between un- the, the uh, depopulation of the pantheon of heroes and, and the Soviet experience that Orwell does in, mm-hmm. via Winston in 1984. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you give us a short history of the short history? And, and let me say, uh, by way of background for people that don't know, the United States, I don't think, has an official history. I'm not sure about that. If, if anybody out there knows about it, I don't think we do. Um, it is true that various government agencies have historians, and they do write history, but we don't have an official history. Uh, the Soviet Union did. Can you tell us how they um, how they came to to write this thing? Uh, yeah, I can. The in the 1920s, sort of predictably, there is no official history of the party. Uh, there are a number of party hierarchs and famous revolutionaries who write memoirs or even write textbooks during time period. But there are a whole array of competing books, none of which have official sanction from the Central Committee in the 1920s. As you get into the 1930s and ideological orthodoxy and vigilance become more and more important, uh, this lack of an official text becomes a real problem. And the Central Committee, especially Stalin, has become very critical of the attempts to produce a political education texts that revolve around party history. Party history is considered to be axiomatic to successful uh, party careers and and, and the adoption of a uh, officially acceptable sense of Soviet identity, but yet there's no official history. And, and Stalin will intervene repeatedly in this process, supported by his comrades in arms, to criticize text after text, which is published uh, after um, 1931. There are attempts to assemble, even the Central Committee will get together and pass resolutions saying, that we need new textbooks, we need a new official history of the party. They will go so far as to appoint brigade after brigade of leading historians in order to write these things. And then they will proceed to reject them as soon as they're turned (laughs) in because they're looking for something that isn't there. And many of these historians prove to be the most reluctant to embrace the heroism and the patriotism of mass culture and build it into their texts. And so it really isn't until 1935 and 36 that you begin to see uh, efforts maturing, which will focus on individual heroes and really draw forward that heroism that's working elsewhere in mass culture. So that then brings us, of course, to the Great Terror. They never managed to launch a successful official history um, in the mid-1930s. 
This is a huge priority. It's been a priority for years. We have multiple Central Committee resolutions announcing that it must be done next year. It's always on the agenda of the Marx, Lenin, Engels, Stalin Institute in, uh, in Moscow, but they fail, fail, fail repeatedly. In 1937, finally, there's a Politburo resolution that is calling upon three leading historians, Yaroslavsky, Knorin, and Pospielov to develop a text. They're given a very short period of time to develop it, during which Knorin is, is arrested and shot. Uh, and so the remaining two members of this troika slowly develop four versions of a textbook between 37 and, and uh, spring of 38. Uh, each time the text is read by Stalin and by his uh, ideological chief Stetsky. Uh, Zhdanov also participates, as does Molotov. Um, and finally, they hand in the fourth version after the third Moscow trials in, in the spring of, or late winter of, of 1938. It's an absolutely paranoid text full <laughs> of fears of left-right conspiracy. The, the Trotskyites and Bukharanites are together collaborating with nationalists in the republics and Japanese and, and German intelligence. It's, it's, it reflects all of the paranoia. Uh, and fear of conspiracy that, that is present in the third trial. Stalin looks at it in the spring and early summer of 1938, and a, in my judge judgment, and this is based on his editing of the text, I've got multiple copies of, of multiple uh, redactions of the text uh, from, these, from these months, uh, Stalin gets very frustrated with the paranoia. He gets very frustrated with the uh, lopsided focus on heroes and enemies, and so over the course of the summer of 1938, during the height of the terror, he takes a couple of weeks off and rewrites the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he strikes about a third of the text that he receives. He rewrites probably between a third and, and maybe 40% of it. Every chapter is rewritten. And so what I mentioned earlier is, is probably the key to take away for, for the discussion today, that he, he removes discussion of individuals from the text. Mm -hmm. He removes both the white hats, the heroes, and the black hats. He takes out lots of detail on part the opponents and the opposition on their platforms. He removes a lot of the discussion of the conspiracies. Uh, and instead, he, he releases, and in, in with, with his colleagues signing on, he releases a text in September of 38, which is schematic, bloodless, based on anonymous social forces and, and large institutions. He, of course, plays a prominent role in the narrative, as does Lenin, but he reduces significantly the, the cultic aspects of, of this text. He tr strikes out um, dozens of hallelujahs to his name, uh, and apparently is trying to float an institutional history of the party mm -hmm. um, with a much more modest uh, role played by the terror, by conspiracies, by enemies. It's basically a success story rather than a, than a, than a, a, success, uh, than a story of, of, of trial and tribulation, which had been turned into him uh, a couple of months earlier. Mm -hmm. And then it's printed and distributed and in And printed in yeah. mass quantities and yeah. forms the backbone of party education until 1953. So it's an extraordinarily important text, and we've always known that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that it's been appreciated in the past, the, the degree to which he uh, forces it to pivot almost 180 degrees uh, in its narrative on party history. And mm -hmm. so that's that's actually what my next project is, is a critical edition of this whole text cool. with Zelenov 
Uh, we'll a, do it both in Russian and in English. Yale's cool. publishing it. That's like a very, in the very, of communism series. very cool project. So uh, we're almost running out of time, but I want to get to the final moments here, uh, and that is uh, again. There's another turn in um, in propaganda uh, material, and this happens immediately before the war and during the war. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, that this is probably an extension of my earlier argument uh, that we see the exigencies which are playing a role of maybe mobilizational surrogates really come to the fore uh, during the war. So the uh, role of, of party history during the war will take a second, uh, sort of a second position, play second fiddle. The personality cults of, of Lenin and especially Stalin will take a secondary role during the war. We can consider a lot of these sorts of narrative structures to still be pretty ossified and just simply difficult to use in a uh, conventional war against uh, the Nazi threat. And so instead we really see the surrogates or the exigencies of the pre-war period coming, to the, coming dramatically to the fore. The focus on um, the Russian national past during the war will be important. You also, of course, get a parallel focus in the republics on the national pasts of the Ukrainians, the Armenians, the Azeris, the Turkmen, and so on and so forth. So this is a, a major effort to look for uh, um, replacements, I guess, to fulfill the central role in mobilizational propaganda, slogans and, and imagery which will mobilize people. You see a limited toleration of the church during the war. You see a lot of sorts of unusual liberalism which indicate to me a weakness of the central line. Uh, you also see a, the beginnings of new investment in heroism, because, of course, you have a whole array of new heroes untouched by the purges who've distinguished themselves and perhaps even died in battle and been martyred mm -hmm. during the great patriotic war, as it's referred to. And so this begins to signal the, the, uh, a, a return to a focus on contemporary heroes. Of course, that focus on Russocentrism allowed a lot of heroes from the Russian national past to come forward and, and play a large role in propaganda, Suvorovs and Kutuzovs and and uh, the like from pre-revolutionary history. But now you have a whole array of, of Soviet heroes from every nationality who've distinguished themselves either in the home front or at the, at the, at the front uh, resisting the Germans uh, who can be valorized. They're, of course, valorized much more gingerly than they would have been in 1934. There are a variety of new sorts of, of things inhibiting the full-blown celebration of heroes because the party still apparently endorses an institutional approach to propaganda. Um, but at the end of the war, you have this, uh, you have a focus on heroism back in the center. It's augmented by these surrogates and, and um, products of the exigencies of the late 30s. And then Stalin's um, personality cult Mm -hmm. will be remounted after mm -hmm. the war, after, after victory has been secured. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I want to congratulate you on writing a really terrific book. We've taken up a lot of your time. I enjoyed our conversation very much. Ordinarily at this point, I would ask what your next project is, but you've already hinted at that, so I'm going to be selfish and ask a different uh, kind of inside baseball question. I'm sorry, listeners. Uh, and you might not even be able to tell me this. Uh, how did you find and get access to... Uh, Stalin's manuscript of the short course. Can you tell that story, or is that double yeah, secret? Yeah, I can. Yeah. 
what we what we ended up so Zilinoff and I did this in tandem. He made a number of early publications in the in just in the early part two thousand one, two thousand two, which began to sort of gingerly approach this question. And he found uh, some uh, sort of incomplete manuscripts in which it's clearly Stalin's handwriting. But what we ended up also doing together was scouring. Uh, the archival funds related to all of the party historians involved in this process. We also looked at the the the, the party, uh, or sorry, the archival repositories associated with the Institute of Marxism and Leninism in mm-hmm. Moscow, where a lot of the directives were done. We also managed to identify uh, what the Ur copies of the short course were. We found the the early manuscripts, especially the manuscripts in, in, in page-proof form that were sent to Stalin in May of 1938. And so what we ended up doing was not only utilizing this huge thousands of pages of, of Stalin's editing and new typewritten, type, new typescripts for the various chapters. We used that. We used his personal interventions and memos. And then we also did a fancy textual analysis of the prototype of the short course before Stalin gets it and the post-Stalin production, which is published in September of 38, and essentially by a process of subtraction and consultation with the manuscripts that we were able to get our, get our hands on, we've been able to identify precisely what he interpolated into the text and precisely what he excised from the text. And so you can imagine this is going to be pretty fancy uh, formatted on the page when Yale publishes it, mm-hmm. but his interpolations are going to be in italic, and and there will be huge <laughs> amounts of struck and uh, strikeout text where he's been he's literally taken a red crayon to the page and crossed the whole thing out. That sounds really cool. It's nice to know, uh, as a medievalist myself, that the uh, arts and sciences of textology are of some value. To modernists, <laughs> because recensions and redactions and schemata and trees, and that's just right out of our, it's a page right out of our book. That's right. So, Ed, Ed Keenan really did me a great service. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, anyway, we've been talking with David Brandenberger about his book, Propaganda Stating Crisis Soviet Ideology, Indoctrination, and Terror Under Stalin, 1927 to 1941. It's a terrific book. And, David, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Okay. Books and history is a real contribution to the field. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Brandenberger about his book, Propaganda State in Crisis, Soviet Ideology, Indoctrination, and Terror Under Stalin. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>